Welcome to the Books and Travel podcast. I'm Jo Francis Penn, thriller and dark fantasy author, bringing you escape and inspiration about unusual and fascinating places, as well as the deeper side of books and travel. You can find the episode show notes at booksandtravel.page. And if you enjoy thrillers set in international locations, download one of my ebooks for free at jfpen.com forward slash free. Hello, travellers. I'm Jo Francis Penn. Sometimes we find home in a place where we don't even speak the language. And in this episode, Louise Ross talks about discovering Portugal, a gentle country with ocean-gazing people, after leaving her original country of Australia and spending many years in the USA. She recommends places to visit, and we also discuss walking and movement as a metaphor for reinvention, and how we can stretch our comfort zones even if we can't physically travel – something we can all appreciate as the pandemic restrictions continue. If you enjoy hearing about Portugal, also check out episode 23, my interview with Richard Zimler, about travelling through the eyes of faith. And you can find an article about my long weekend in Lisbon on the blog and linked in the show notes with lots of pictures. I visited the city on a book research trip for my thriller Tree of Life, which opens in the Portuguese synagogue in Amsterdam and then follows the route of the Portuguese empire in a hunt for the Garden of Eden. So I hope you enjoy the interview with Louise today. Louise Ross is the author of Women Who Walk and The Winding Road to Portugal. She's an Australian currently living in Portugal, where she explores the immigrant and expatriate journey through her writing and her podcast, Women Who Walk. Welcome, Louise. Thanks, Jo. It's lovely to be here. A real honour to be on your podcast, Books and Travel. Oh, well, thanks for coming on. And I'm excited to talk about Portugal. I love Portugal. And uh, obviously, we're still in the pandemic. (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, So I wondered, uh, what drew you to Portugal in the first place? And why did you decide to stay? Mm -hmm. Well, in 1994, my American ex-husband and I took a three-week road trip through Spain. And when we arrived in Tarifa, which is the southernmost point of the Iberian Peninsula facing Morocco, we could see across the Strait of Gibraltar to Africa. And we looked at each other and we said, let's go. So we bought ferry tickets with the intention of spending a few days in Tangier. Now, this was back in the mid-90s when Australians needed visas to go just about everywhere, which meant when we boarded the ferry, the border police looked at my passport and at my single-entry visa to Spain and said, sorry, but you can't leave Spain unless you're flying back to the US from Morocco or unless you want to spend several days at the Spanish embassy in Tangier waiting for a re-entry visa to return to Spain. So we drove over to the entry point to cross into Gibraltar instead and the same thing because of my single entry visa, we couldn't cross that Spanish-British border. For some reason, we decided to drive over to Portugal. Why we thought it would be any different crossing that border, I don't know. But it was different because there was no border control and so we crossed with ease and we spent five days in the Algarve on the beach and it was such a memorable experience 
I remember saying to myself, I've got to come back and visit Lisbon sometime. Fast forward to 2010 and I'm in a workshop in Mexico in the um, Spanish colonial city of San Miguel Allende with about a dozen participants and one of those people was a woman from Portugal and we became great pals and over the next couple of years we visited each other from time to time. I was living in Colorado and when I visited her in Lisbon, her family and extended family were incredibly warm and welcoming. And they introduced me to the food, the culture, the language and the beautiful sights of this gentle country. And on one of those visits, in fact, it was winter in Colorado, it was very mild here in, in Lisbon, it dawned on me that I could easily live here. I guess because there was a sense of familiarity, since like Australia, the major cities in Portugal are coastal. And so the Portuguese are an ocean-gazing people like the Australians, and also with a significant beach culture that involves surfing and swim swimming and lazing on the beach and enjoying beachside cafes with the tables facing the ocean so that even while you eat and chat, you're always gazing out to sea. And the fact is I was looking for a way to leave the US because there are aspects of American culture that I just could no longer abide. So it was in 2014, I sold up and moved to an area just outside of Lisbon on the coast. And I had in mind that I'd stay for about 10 years and it's been seven years now. And periodically I do think what next, but that's still a few years away. Hmm. Well, that's really interesting. I like that you call it a gentle country and yes. that you also went there from Spain. And, and mm. it's funny, I, I've loved Spain for many years. I almost moved there, except that they have this night eating culture. Uh -huh. I know. <laughs> I'm a morning person and Spain is not really a morning culture. And, and it's funny, I wasn't prepared to like Portugal as much as I did. Mm. And it's mm -hmm. funny because people might know where Spain is, but Portugal is like on the left hand side. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. And people think, oh, it's quite similar, but it's so different, yeah. isn't it? And oh, the language, gosh. the language mm. is really different. right? Uh -huh. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. In, in fact, when I first arrived, I I uh, was just, the language was just so unfamiliar to me. So I, in fact, I started to, to take some classes with a, with a tutor back in Colorado and she was Brazilian. So even the Brazilian Portuguese is quite different to European Portuguese. But nevertheless, I was becoming a little bit more familiar with the sounds and the words. And on one visit, I got into an elevator with my Portuguese friend and I made some comment and I said to, something along the lines of, that's not what that word sounds like. And it was something like, and which means it is. But anyway, we laughed because it seriously just sounds so different from anything that you're familiar with. And then the Portuguese, uh, Brazilian Portuguese sounds so different from the European Portuguese. And I just got so muddled. At some point I just blurted out to her, I said, at the end of the day, this just sounds like Russian to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know what you mean. It is quite different. So it's interesting because you said there you're an Australian and you have a familiarity with this mm. kind of coastal life and this ocean gazing life. But what are the differences between Portugal and Australia and, and also the US? Because I, I feel like it's often easier to see cultural differences as an out 
as an outsider rather than someone who's native to the country. So what what are the differences Mm. you see? Well, I think the most obvious cultural difference is due to the fact that Portugal is a Southern European Catholic country that's very family-focused. And so family is everything, or life in Portugal revolves around the family. And I'm single and childless by choice. So right there, I've always felt a little bit different. But in the US, that was never the case because where I lived in Boulder, Colorado, it's a university town that has a very strong entrepreneurship culture. And the entrepreneurs and the intellectual capital in that community is really impressive. Plus, athletes will come from all over the world to train in Boulder because of the altitude and So my friends and acquaintances were all creatives and entrepreneurs and that coupled with living at the foot of the Rocky Mountains with skiing and hiking and biking and rock climbing on our doorstep dominated life or rather entrepreneurship and physical fitness dominated, perhaps in the way that the culture of family dominates life in Portugal. Whereas in in Australia, I think what's similar to Portuguese culture is this uh, beach surf and sun worshipping kind of part of our life and lifestyle. One of the things that that struck me as unusual, though, is that the Portuguese are, are very reserved, and this might be as a result of the dictatorship that they live through and that the, the family unit's very tight. So In that sense, I think that that creates um, a kind of reserve regarding outsiders and reserve compared to to their exuberant Spanish neighbours. But they have these great expressions that, to me, are indicative of a wonderful sense of humour. And that also kind of reminds me of Australia because I think both cultures have this sort of ironic or droll take on things. Yeah, it's interesting. I think another thing I found is that, I mean, you mentioned there the exuberance of Spain. And obviously, I I feel that Australia and America are very exuberant and sort of outgoing Mm. cultures compared to, say, the UK. I feel like British Mm -hmm. people are generally more reserved and that Portugal uh, is definitely that's more withdrawn and less pushy. I mean, like, I think we were so Mm. surprised. I mean, the quality of the food and the wine and we were like, how come this isn't better known? It's like, oh, Mm. people say, oh, the best food in Europe is in Italy or, or Spain. And we're like, yeah, maybe go to Portugal because I think they just keep mm. it quiet like I we we drank some incredible wine and sort of asked the the sommelier uh, whether we could buy some and he said oh we don't export the best wine <laughs> ah. <laughs> we keep that <laughs> that is for, for sort of locally so I feel like it's a hidden hidden gem as such absolutely absolutely I think that describes it so well but that said I mean since I've been here it really is now on the map for travelers because of all the things that we've both mentioned and because I think it was probably about maybe six years ago I remember reading that they had a new travel and tourism minister and suddenly there are all these wonderful uh, like YouTube videos about the glories of Portugal and they went viral and it seriously Portugal was suddenly on the map and and my sister in Australia at one point Uh, We were talking and she said, oh, I've just read this amazing article in the Sunday Age, the pull-out travel section about Portugal. Everyone here suddenly wants to go to Portugal. And uh, 
it just really was, well, it kind of felt like an overnight sensation, like the country was suddenly discovered and which has its pluses and minuses. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, I guess if people are going to visit, you mentioned the religious side, although, again, I felt it was a lot less mm. religious than Spain, for example, a lot less bloody. There's a lot of bloody religious mm. <laughs> places yes. in uh, in Spanish mm. Catholicism. But what are some of the historic or religious or cultural places that you would recommend visiting? Okay, well, listeners might be aware that back in 1755, there was this massive earthquake and the city was destroyed or the city of Lisbon was destroyed first by fire and then a tsunami. But still standing today, barely, is the Convento do Carmo or Carmo Convent in the centre of Lisbon. And the ruins of this convent are an eerie reminder of the destruction of that earthquake but it's strangely glorious standing in the middle of the ruins and looking up at the sky since there's no roof only stone walls and uh, the arches and you can hear the 21st century neighborhood bustling around and there's an outfit that puts together these amazing outdoor public light shows and they often do this in the ruins of the convent And once again, you stand inside and the light show is projected onto the walls and the convent arches with the night sky completely visible above. And they're really spectacular shows. And generally the focus is an important historical Portuguese story projected in images with accompanying sounds. So it's right in the centre of of Lisbon, fabulous place to visit. The Geronimus Monastery is a former monastery of the Order of St. Jerome in Belém, just outside Lisbon. And to me, it's an extraordinary piece of Gothic architecture that stretches long and thin, and it dominates the flatland abutting the Tejo River. And I think it's spectacular because it did survive the 1755 earthquake and tsunami. That alone makes it remarkable to me because whether you're a religious person or not, you can't help pondering if there was some sort of divine intervention that saved it from destruction. And uh, Sunday church services uh, are held there, so it's still a place of worship. Uh, Again, back right in the centre of the city is Saint-Georges Castle, which is also in ruins and which was built on the highest point in Lisbon. It's a really impressive historical site. They've dated human habitation on this hilltop site to the 8th century BC. The views across the city are absolutely spectacular from the castle and there's a museum of sorts that has been built into the ruins that contains fragments of artefacts collected from the site. Many listeners are probably aware of Sintra Mountain. It's an amazing spot that's like a scene out of a fairy tale. It's a mountain village dotted with colourful castles and magical gardens and forests. And there's quite a mystical feeling on the mountain, which is enhanced by the fact that it has its own microclimate that causes a heavy fog to suddenly roll in and completely envelop the mountain. So one moment you're gazing out over the Atlantic, admiring the view, and the next it's as though the heavens have gently tossed this soft, damp veil over everything. And it's just the most bizarre natural phenomena and truly quite spooky. 
And often overlooked when people visit Sintra is the Kapushish Monastery, which dates back to the 14th century. And it was home to a, a group of Franciscan monks who must have absolutely frozen in the winter because it's basically a series of small stone rooms lined with cork built into boulders on the west side of Sintra Mountain. And the monks cells are tiny and meagre and damp and their life would have been incredibly austere and yet the setting is absolutely stunning. The surrounding forests and the view down to the coastline is awesome. So they're probably just my top picks for travellers that can be easily accessible from, from the city. Mm, yeah out of Lisbon absolutely and it's funny you mentioned cork there what things do you buy in Portugal and everyone always mentions the cork yes. <laughs> personally I think the cork does well in a bottle of wine <laughs> I've obviously got what I like but it's funny you also mentioned the convent and mm. um, I actually put that convent in my thriller Tree of Life Did which you? yeah which also fe- features Belém and the um, Explorer mm. Monument there mm. and yeah I love that convent they've actually got these ancient uh, Peruvian mummies in the mm-hmm. um, inside there so I, mm-hmm. I mean if you f- find some ancient mummies in a ruined convent they have to go in a book <laughs> it is a bit odd joe isn't it because that little museum inside is wonderful but i did wonder why <laughs> why the ancient peruvian mummies in this museum about this convent i mean yeah i, I, I don't get it but never mind <laughs> But it is still really cool. So, yeah, that I yeah. definitely recommend that as well. And then, obviously, you mentioned uh, Sintra with the and the view out mm-hmm. uh, to the ocean. But anything else around the natural world? I mean, you don't go for a swim in Lisbon City, even though it's on the river, right? It's mm-hmm. a big industrial port. Mm-hmm. So where are good places to, to go in terms of the more natural side of the country? Yeah, yeah. Well, close to Lisbon is Costa, Costa de Caparica, where the beaches tre- stretch for miles and gorgeous coastline. Also relatively close to Lisbon is the peninsula of Troia. Uh, again, gorgeous white sandy beaches that stretch around the peninsula. Out where I live along the Estoril coastline toward Cascais, there are little kind of cove beaches. And it was this area actually that that I kind of fell in love with because it reminded me a little bit of the cove beaches around Sydney with lots of cafes right on the the beach. And this is the culture of cafes that was so familiar to me. The beaches are small along the linear between Lisbon and Cascais because they are small coves. But I'm a dreadful wimp, so I find the, the water just way too cold. However... Probably many listeners have had mini breaks down in the Algarve and the water is a little warmer down there. South of Lisbon on the Alentejo coastline, uh, there are a lot of wonderful beaches uh, in that area as well. And most of these uh, beaches, the Alentejo coastline, Costa Capulica and uh, Troia, uh, they're not overdeveloped and thus they're still pretty wild and untouched. There, you know, there are sort of cafes on the beach or little restaurants on the beach, but they're not. It's not over to, overly developed, so it's not like like you have big high rise uh, apartment blocks built behind or off the beach. So I think that that's rather delightful that so many of these spots are still undeveloped. 
And then inland, I love the Alentejo countryside. It's just simply sublime. In spring, the landscape is blooming with wildflowers and it's deliciously green and the livestock. Uh, I don't think I've seen such happy cows except maybe in Switzerland. But here they're not standing at a precarious angle on the side of a mountain. They're sitting under the shade of olive, olive trees looking very happy and content. So I, I love the Alentejo for, for the feeling of it being just rather idyllic. Yes, and for people, again, who might not have the geography in their heads, so Portugal's on the Atlantic coast, so you mm. look out mm. out to sea and you're looking across a really big ocean to basically, what, Latin America or North America, opposite. North America. <laughs> yeah, North America. Mm-hmm. Yeah, North America. Mm. And whereas Spain, which, you know, you could drive to Spain quite easily, but on the other side of Spain, obviously, is the Mediterranean, so it's more sheltered. And so that's why they're quite different. As you say, I probably mm. wouldn't want to be swimming mm-hmm. <laughs> there on the Atlantic coast there it'd be quite chilly but yeah amazing amazing views so I did want to ask you about some of the challenges of being an, an expat because so you know sometimes it can be really hard to be somewhere new you know different language and all of that so how did you find community and work through those challenges mm-hmm Well, in a country like Portugal, where the Portuguese family unit is somewhat closed to outsiders, one finds friendship and community with other internationals. And for some reason, there's an amazingly rich and diverse community of internationals here. And within a few weeks of arriving back in 2014, I became a member of International Women in Portugal, which is a social organisation of women from all over the world. And very quickly, I was on their board and getting involved in that way opened doors for me. And those connections have really been a lifeline. One of the more recent challenges is that during the pandemic, I haven't been able to house sit for a friend in London, which I have been doing two to three times a year since 2015. And so that made me aware that those trips to London were also a bit of a lifeline because I'd step into a culture that was so easy for me. I could just let down for however many days I was there. People understood me. I understood them. I could wander into a little hardware store and buy bits and bobs. But here in, say, my local neighbourhood hardware store, it's an undertaking of mammoth proportion that requires patience, perseverance, an advanced version of Google Translate, which I don't have. (laughs) So I've missed those trips. And nevertheless, uh, I think, as I've just said, it's been a real lifeline to be part of an international community because within that community, I guess, we, we share ways to navigate some of the challenges of living in Portugal. And there are many. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, as there, as there are anywhere where you don't speak the language. And obviously, a lot of people do speak some English, enough English to get by with tourists. But that's not the same as the level of English to really build a relationship or presumably your level of Portuguese to get deeper into a conversation. That's right. I mean, I'm pretty happy with what I call my cafe Portuguese. You know, so long as you can communicate about what you want to eat and drink, you can do fairly well. And then over the years, I've really been able to hear the language. And so I'm a pretty good 
mimicker, I think. So I can mimic the way that the Portuguese speak, but then that gets you in trouble because, you know, once you start to to, um, have many conversations, I think people assume that I know more because I sound like I speak the language and then and then off they go and then I have to say, oh, you know, I really only speak Portuguese. A little, I only speak a little bit of Portuguese. Can we speak in English? Which is a real cop-out because if I dedicated myself, I think I could really advance. But but I find too many other things to do, Jo. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I, I, I certainly can't. I mean, English people, British people are, are terrible. <laughs> generally with languages and I always feel very guilty but just thinking about all the like you said the challenges of the country but obviously you're Australian you lived in America uh, and now you're there in Portugal so what is home to you is something I talk about a lot on this show and Mm -hmm. trying to figure out for many of us like what is home and have you found it in Portugal? There's an organization that I belong to called Families in Global Transition and this is an ongoing discussion Uh, and of course most of it's online these days and it's especially a discussion in the community of TCKs or third culture kids Uh, and it's a question with no definitive answer or rather I think that there are answers but they're unique to each individual living outside their current country of origin and Personally, over the years, I've I've simply come to terms with the choice that I've made to live outside my country of origin. And frankly, no particular place feels like home to me. But oddly, I'm a homebody, which is to say wherever I am, I love to create a beautiful home where I feel safe and comfortable and where I love to open my door to friends and entertain. And in that regard, I attempt to create home wherever I am. So what do you do to make that? I'm not a very homebody, as in I'm standing in a house I own, but I am terrible at making a place feel like home. I'm quite maybe the opposite. (laughs) I feel I can be at home in many places, but I I wouldn't know how to make a a physical space feel like home. So do you know what I mean? Like, What do you Mm -hmm. do to make that? space Hmm. feel like home? That's an interesting question. When I arrived here, all of my personal possessions were stored. But in fact, I owned my own apartment in Colorado, but I'd sold up so much of what I owned that what I kept in storage were just a few things. And for quite some time, let's see, it wasn't until I got my residency, and that was probably two years after I was living here, I lived in a partially furnished, or I still live in the same apartment, but the the apartment was partially furnished. And the landlady did a really good job of just keeping it a a little like a blank canvas, so everything was beige. And uh, and I had a number of events here for IWP. We'd have maybe a guest speaker or something, and I'd open up the apartment and people would come and we'd listen to our guest speaker in, in my living room. And it made the participants at those events incredibly uncomfortable to see this somewhat empty beige apartment with no books on the bookshelf, et cetera. And a number of women said, you know, I I could lend you things. This is really fascinating to, to me that people were so uncomfortable with the space and the blank canvas. And yet 
I wanted to keep it blank for a period of time until I figured out how I was, what kind of life or how I was going to create a life for myself here. And then once I did get my residency, I could ship my personal possessions over from, from the US. And then I placed those things around the apartment. And then, of course, I was lacking colour. Colour is really important to me. So over a period of time, I began to piece together, I suppose, decor that really reflected who I am and what makes me feel joyous in my own home. In the meantime, of course, I was travelling. My sister spends a lot of time in Turkey. I went there. We went shopping. Mm-hmm. I bought some beautiful carpets, some bits and bobs there. I went to Morocco. I, I bought some fabulous carpets there. And so I started to collect a few things. I didn't want to over-collect because I didn't want to suddenly fill another apartment with things that I might not want to carry forward into my the next phase of my life. But it has something to do with creating a home for me, has something to do with making it a reflection of something of yourself. Now, that said, Joe, I saw some wonderful promotional photos that were taken, taken of you. I think you posted them on Facebook. And I thought, oh, look at her beautiful home. She's got this gorgeous, elegant white bookshelf in the background that's filled with books. So I'm surprised that you said that because if that's your home, it looks like a wonderful reflection of who I imagine you to be, which is this study or this living room filled with with books and uh, yeah, that's beautiful really environment. <laughs> yeah, to be honest, I did put those on this week and I do have a lot of books. Like I have thousands of books, but I've had thousands of books in every place and they're all different. And I, what I do mm. every couple of weeks is I take another couple of bags out to fill the space with more books so Mm -hmm. it's almost like my attachment is to books Mm -hmm. plural not to specific books and those lovely bookcases they're just from Ikea (laughs) so so it's funny isn't it but I'm fascinated by this because yeah I had never it's funny and it should be obvious but I had never thought of home as actually being the physical space to me it's a a much bigger concept so it's really Mm. interesting to hear you say that But let's talk about one of your books, Mm -hmm. um, Women Who Walk. Now, I'm fascinated by this. I am a woman who walks and I've had Mm -hmm. quite a few women walking on the show and men. But it's your book is not about walking specifically, which I I found really interesting. So what do you mean by walk in this context and Mm -hmm. uh, how can we use it to find strength in, in these weird times? Right, right. Well, I do love the title. Uh, Actually, a now deceased friend of mine came up with it, someone I really respect. And we were both members of a Friday hiking group that met and still meets and uh, has met for 20 years to hike the trails around Sintra. And there's a lot of just gorgeous natural environs around Sintra Mountain. And the group that that gets together each Friday uh, is a group of international women. They're generally members of of the organisation I mentioned, International Women in Portugal, and they've lived all around the world, moving country to country. And it was their stories that inspired me to write Women Who Walk. And I thought that the title was very clever because it captures all the relevant images 
such as the most literal, which is women walking or women moving forward with direction, uh, empowered women, uh, women of strength and, and, and so on. And these are traits that the women in the book embody. Now, how we can find strength in these difficult times to move? Well, I think one way to find inner strength is by turning to our imagination. The power of our imagination is a wonderful tool, as is our capacity as, as humans to be creative. For instance, your podcast, Joe, Books and Travel, you started it because you couldn't travel due to the pandemic. I remember hearing that in one of your episodes. And, uh, and so how clever and creative is that? And you inspired me. I downloaded your ebook, Audio for Authors. And during the winter lockdown here in Portugal, I set about creating a podcast version of my book, Women Who Walk, which I've just launched. And, and my interviews are with intrepid women who've made multiple international moves for work and adventure and for love and for freedom. And just as your books and travel podcast has taken me on fascinating journeys around the world, I hope that Women Who Walk will fire up the imaginations of the women who hopefully will tune in and, and listen. And so imagination is a wonderful thing. And I sometimes think of Nelson Mandela and his self for 27 years and wonder at his strength and resolve surviving such an injustice. And I like to think that he had a powerful imagination and a profound sense of faith in something greater than the mundane that helped his spirit and intellect soar beyond the confines of his imprisonment. And it's interesting, this idea of moving forward. I like that metaphor with the walking. Like you say, it's about moving forward and changing. And you starting your podcast is a sort of reinvention of sorts, because I know how much work it takes to do a podcast and to learn te some technical skills and to learn interview skills and to do all these different things in order to, to move forward with what you want to create. So I, I just encourage people, especially, I mean, we still... <laughs> not traveling <laughs> mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. during this time and and I feel the same way it's like well how do I move myself forward in my life when I am still constrained in a physical context but as you say you can potentially do it in your imagination maybe through writing or creating or doing whatever you feel that you want to do but that moving forward can be recreating um, yourself rather than moving countries again for example Absolutely, absolutely. And I think that one of the things that I've realised during this time is that I also have the capacity for enormous focus. I mean, when your life is restrained, yes, you can kind of rail against it and you can get frustrated. But there's another way to channel that energy, which is to just really focus and, and do something that helps you release that energy. And for creatives, I think that your natural inclination is to create, is to produce. And it's just a matter of finding what that is so that you can spend your energy uh, in a productive and perhaps wise way. Yes, because there, there really is no point fighting against something 
such as a pandemic because we simply can't. We just need to be patient. It will resolve at some point in some way. And in the meantime, yes, fire up your imagination and get creative. Yeah, indeed. So, of course, this is the Books and Travel show. And apart from your own books, can you recommend a few books about Portugal or travel books that you love? Yes, yes. I have a bookshelf of fiction and non-fiction titles about Portugal. And when I arrived, I found it enormously uh, helpful to read non-fiction titles in particular and help me understand the country and the history and the origins of the culture. So my non-fiction faves are the following. Uh, The first is The Portuguese by Barry Hatton, an Englishman. I think there's a new edition with the subtitle A Modern History, but my copy was published back in 2011 and it doesn't have a subtitle. But on the back uh, cover, Hatton says that his purpose in writing the book, and this is why I bought it, is to describe the idiosyncrasies that make this lovely and sometimes exasperating country unique and to search for explanations surveying the historical path that drove the Portuguese to where they now stand. And he succeeds beautifully in his endeavour. It's a great and um, read and truly enlightening. The next is The First Global Village, How Portugal Changed the World by another Englishman, Martin Page, And uh, apparently there are a number of historical errors in this book, but nevertheless, I learned some rather interesting little foodie-type tidbits in this book. And I'll mention that the origin of afternoon tea, which I thought was British, in fact, was introduced to the British by the Portuguese, who probably uh, learned of it from the Chinese. And uh, we all equate tempura with Japan, and yet the Portuguese, who were the first Westerners to enter Japan, introduced peixinhos de porta, and that's horta, or garden fishes, which is green uh, beans fried in a light batter. The Portuguese introduced that to Japan, and which ultimately became tempura. So these are just a couple of tiny little examples of the cross-cultural pollination that resulted when the Portuguese set sail on their discoveries. And the book digs way deeper than this, but I just love those little anecdotes. And it reaches back to when Portugal was Rome on the Atlantic, which I love that term too. And it comes full circle to the present with the Carnation Revolution. So it's a great um, wandering yarn and exploration of the history of this country. And now the next is Lisbon, War in the Shadows of the City of Light, 1939 to 1945, by Neil Lockery, yet another Englishman. And this one is my favourite, probably because my father was a veteran of the Second World War, and so I grew up with a lot of stories and books about the war. But this particular book for me was fascinating because I wasn't familiar with the fact that Portugal did not enter the war. And under the Salazar dictatorship, Portugal remained neutral. But once you read this, you were like, neutral? Well, it was sort of neutral because what we learn is that Salazar was very cunning, playing both sides, the Brits and the Germans, ultimately selling off Portugal's tungsten, which is a metal used to produce a piercing projectiles, which apparently melted the British tanks. 
Mm. Uh, and it was sold off to the Germans for gold that the Nazis looted. And all that gold hidden away somewhere in, in um, Portugal helped the country emerge after the war economically intact. And it's a riveting read and it has the quality of, say, a, a film noir like the movie Casablanca. So I highly recommend that one. Now, in terms of historical fiction, well, I have to mention a previous guest of yours and someone I really admire, and that's Richard Zimler, an American writer living in Porto uh, in the north of Portugal, and his historical novel, The Last Cabalist of Lisbon is a Beauty, and I love it for its historically accurate story about a period of Portuguese history that many Portuguese don't even know about, which is the massacre of thousands of Jews in 1506, which I think heralded the Portuguese Inquisition. But you and Richard talk quite eloquently about uh, that in your conversation, which I think is episode 23. So, oh, thank you. Yeah. yeah <laughs> I'm yeah, glad you yeah. mentioned Richard. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no, that, that was great. He's an incredible speaker. Uh, so I won't say more about that book. And just the, the last one for something sort of delightful and charming uh, Estoril, a war novel by a Serbian-Portuguese writer, Dejan Tiago Stankovic. This is a little gem. It's sort of part spy novel, part historical fiction, and it tells the tale of a young Jewish boy who has been deposited by his parents at a luxurious hotel in Estoril for safekeeping during World War II. And the hotel is probably modelled after the Palazzo Hotel in Estoril, which is still in operation. And during the war, it was home to exiled European nobles and royalty, British and German spies. And the author weaves in real historical personalities. So we meet the Polish pianist uh, Jan Paderewski, Ian Fleming, the British spy novelist and creator of James Bond, uh, and the original novel was set in the Estoril Casino, which is next to the Hotel Palazzo, and French writer and flyer and Antoine Saint, uh, de Saint-Exupéry and the ex-king of Romania, Carol II, and his mistress, Elena Lupescu, the woman he renounced his crown for in order that they could be together. And we're privy to the goings-on at the hotel via the lives of this cast of characters in, in a way that's reminiscent of that very quirky movie, The Grand Budapest Hotel. So they're my top picks. Oh, that's fantastic. <laughs> I read that Hatton, the, the one you talked about first. Yeah, very yeah that was excellent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so thank you for those. So where can people find you and your books and your podcast online? Well, they can find my books on my website, louiseross.com. They can also access my podcast, Women Who Walk There, but they can also very easily find it on their favourite podcast provider. So that's, again, Women Who Walk, and my name is Louise Ross. Brilliant. Thanks so much for your time, Louise. That was great. Thank you so much, Jo. It's been a real pleasure and, again, such an honour to be on your podcast. Thanks for joining me today on the Books and Travel podcast. I hope you found a moment of escape. You can find the episode show notes at booksandtravel.page. And if you enjoy thrillers set in international locations, download one of my books for free at jfpen.com forward slash free. Happy travels until next time.